Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, I'm Michael Hoke and this is the Yale University Press Podcast. Today we're going on a whirlwind tour of global powers and their relationships with each other. What does the future of great power competition look like and what policies should the U.S. adopt to meet the challenges and opportunities down the road? With me today is U.S. foreign policy expert Thomas J. Wright. Tom is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution. He's written a book, All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Tom, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's start uh, sort of in the beginning, as it were. Um, after the Cold War, uh, at least to the casual observer, it seemed that uh, many of the sort of major global powers were working toward common goals, or at least that was the belief. Um, you say, however, that this convergence was a myth. So first of all, what led us to believe that we as a global community were moving toward uh, bigger cooperation? Yeah, but I think, you know, after the Cold War, um, when people were trying to make sense of the world that was emerging, uh, what they saw uh, were sort of common challenges like pandemic diseases, terrorism, uh, a volatile global economy, uh, climate change. Uh, and they also saw that the major powers sort of defined these problems in much the same way and that old-style geopolitical competition of the sort where countries feuded over territorial disputes or sort, sought to check the influence and the rise of the others uh, seemed uh, to be a thing of the past. Um, so if you look at, you know, there was lots of disputes and lots of problems, but there wasn't the sort of, you know, uh, systematic balancing, as political scientists call it, uh, by one country of another. So when the United States invaded Iraq, in 2003, you know, Russia objected at the UN Security Council. Everyone created a big fuss, um, but they didn't arm Saddam Hussein or intervene in Iraq um, on Saddam Hussein's behalf against the United States. And when there were problems with China, you know, China didn't respond sort of militarily or, or with a major sort of military effort at the toward uh, sort of U.S. Uh, strategy. And so that style of geopolitical competition. Uh, seemed to be sort of fading away. And, and people, I think, believed that all of the major powers were sort of headed in the same direction towards the same type of liberal international order, even if they disagreed on certain things or had problems on certain things, that they all had a stake uh, in the same type of, uh, of world. And that assumption really drove U.S. foreign policy and European foreign policy and indeed sort of Russia and China for, for a time. But ultimately, I think, it unraveled, and we find ourselves back in 2017 in a much more traditional type of world where the major powers, I think, see each other, some of them see each other as rivals, and that is more of the defining sort of principle or, uh, you know, idea of, of, of world politics today than this notion that we all sort of have the world on the same side. So where did that start to, I guess, go wrong? Where did the where did the global powers start to realize, hey, we are rivals and we are going to move away and not necessarily cooperate? Well, I think part of it is that, you know, part of the reason why the rivalry went away was that the power disparity between the United States and other countries was so large. And part of it was that, 
you know, the U.S. is upholding this international order that other countries thought might be in their interest. Uh, both of those things began to change, I think, in the 2000s. You know, Russia and China both worried uh, that this liberal international order would ultimately mean that they would have to become democracies, and they worried about sort of the collapse of their regimes. And even though one might argue that's in the interest of the peoples of those countries, it certainly wasn't in the interest of the leaders as they defined it. And so they worried about that. And then they also wanted to have greater influence in their region. They wanted a traditional sphere of influence as they became more powerful. And they, they understood correctly, I think, that that's incompatible with the current uh, liberal international order. And so they began to push back. But I think, you know, really the, the crucial moments came in 2008-09 with the financial crisis that I think changed the dynamic and, and sort of led to, you know, other countries questioning U.S. leadership. And then in around 2012, when you see, you know, Xi Jinping taking power in China, Putin coming back late 11, early 12 in, in, in Russia, and and so and and then the, this sort of you know reassertion of sort of these major authoritarian powers uh, that are acting sort of assertively in their regions. And talking about that um, financial crisis and how that may have sort of eroded uh, some of the the standing that the U.S. had globally. Um, what about the response to the the financial crisis? Do you think had the biggest impact? On, on sort of changing the, the way other countries viewed the U.S. As a, as a financial power? Well, I think, you know, ironically, the response to the financial crisis was probably quite good. I mean, it certainly was good in a historical perspective compared to the 1930s. And yeah, we saw a severe recession, but we didn't see the type of massive depression um, that occurred uh, the last time there was a major crisis of this kind. And the political fallout, I think, we're still dealing with. But again, it wasn't quite as bad or nearly as bad even as in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But that, of course, is not what people sort of really measure it by. They don't look back to the 30s. They sort of measure it in terms of their life before 2008 or 9. And in that sense, I think uh, there was a real questioning of what this liberal order was offering. I mean, globalization was meant to bring mutual prosperity and sort of a pathway to success. And instead, it was seen as a crisis prone and as a threat to to you know ordinary people and 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 their livelihoods and I, I think that that was a significant sort of uh, that was a, a significant step setback that we're still uh, trying to deal with and so let's let's take a look at Europe um, uh, you know obviously recently uh, the UK voted to to leave the EU and then the next sort of measure of the health of the EU was the, the French elections, which seemingly went uh, in a pro-EU direction. And then Germany has some upcoming elections. Where, uh, how, did the, how did Europe get to where it is now? Yeah, well, I think after that, you know, when that era of convergence begins to unravel, what you essentially see is the reemergence of this competition. And the book is really about what that competition looks like in an age of globalization. I mean, what does it mean to return to a more traditional form of geopolitical competition when we're also interdependent and integrated? And I think this is really playing out in two sort of key regions, the two regions of greatest importance 
uh, with China in East Asia and then in Europe with Russia, but also with all of these other crises. What you essentially see in Europe, I think, is, you know, after 2008-09, when Europe is perceived to be, uh, uh, before the crisis, sort of in really good shape and sort of the end of history has really taken hold and, you know, they're looking for ways to integrate further. Um, you see the the accumulation of like four or five major crises that all interact with each other and make each other worse. And so you have the Euro crisis and the divisions that that sows within the Eurozone and the EU more generally. And you then have, you know, the Russia crisis when Russia invades Ukraine, annexes Crimea, and then uh, remains at war uh, with Ukraine in, in, in the Donbass region. Uh, you then, of course, have the refugee crisis stemming from the collapse of Syria and the regional disorder in the Middle East. Uh, the fourth crisis is Brexit, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, which occurs partly as an echo of the Euro crisis, but also uh, because of the uh, of the immigration concerns too, and and this uh, sort of long running fault line between the UK and the EU. And then finally, you have, uh, you know, you have the US crisis when you have Trump elected and, and his questioning of the Transatlantic Alliance. And so these, I think, together really have this negative synergy where um, they mean that Europe is in very, very deep trouble uh, right now. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great if, you know, the problems are very structural, um, but uh, one real difficulty they have is that they have a very sort of uh, hostile actor on the edge of Europe trying to stoke all of these different crises and problems and make and exacerbate them and, and take advantage. And that's, of course, Putin's Russia that I think sees the EU as an existential threat to his interests and would like to see it, uh, if not completely dissolved, at least uh, massively reduced in its importance and in its role. And, and that I think Europe is wholly uh, ill-equipped to essentially deal with. It's very unprepared uh, for that competition. And it means that if this gets worse and we have another, if we have another five years like the last five, I think uh, the the implications will be pretty dire. Does Russia see itself as part of Europe um, in a sense, and it's that they want to change Europe to fit what they think Europe should be, or do they see themselves outside of Europe and they want to weaken Europe so that they can exert more influence in the area? Well, I think the Russia and Russians have always seen themselves as a fundamental part of Europe but not necessarily part of the European project as we've understood it. You know, they, um, they see themselves, of course, at the heart, at the heart of Europe. Um, but they, I think, would like, particularly Putin, would like to see a fundamentally different European order. He would like to see a sort of influence system uh, where the EU is, is not really that uh, uh, big a player at all, where the US influence is reduced, mm -hmm. where Russia has a much greater say over its neighborhood and, and, and uh, maybe further afield in Eastern Europe. And uh, they have an essential veto over, veto over most of the major foreign policy decisions of, of, of other countries uh, in the region. So I think that's sort of the, the type of world they have um, they have in mind, and they see that U.S.-led sort of European order as a as a as a grave sort of danger. Um, not necessarily because of NATO troops or anything like that. I think that's overstated. But because um, ultimately a democratic and prosperous and market-oriented 
Europe uh, will uh, lead to demands for the same thing in Russia. Some might say that, you know, part of what's maybe facilitated uh, what Russia is doing in Europe, uh, as far as interference goes, as far as trying to exert this influence, is that the U.S. has maybe become less involved or less interested in Europe. Um, do Do you find that to be the case? Um, well, certainly, I think President Obama wanted to do less in Europe, and he thought Europeans should take more care of themselves, and be mm-hmm. less reliant on the United States. And it's true, too, that I think President Trump wants to do much, even much less than President Obama did in Europe and believes that Europe should take care um, of everything. But I think when you look at the actual problems in Europe, uh, there's widespread agreement that uh, Europe, along with East Asia, I think, are one, one of the two most critical regions in the world to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And if Europe fell apart, uh, then the international order as a whole will fall apart because ultimately the international order is founded on healthy regional orders. And it's the healthy European regional order that's really at the heart of that healthy global order. And so I think the United States has a very, very uh, uh, clear interest in a, in a successful Europe. If you just think about it, even economically, you know, if the Eurozone fell apart and caused a financial crisis, that would be dramatically worse than the crisis in 2008-2009. So that's just one example. Then on the security front, we know from history that whenever, you know, there's major conflict in Europe, that ultimately it spreads to the rest of the world. So I think there are, you know, uh, long-standing and enduring course for the U.S. interest in in Europe. So what do you see uh, in Europe as a way forward um, for U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think the first thing is to be clear that the U.S. actually has an interest in bolstering and upholding um, the post-war European order, and that the United States supports a strong EU and supports a strong NATO and wants to see cooperation between European countries um, uh, and wants to deter uh, Russia uh, from aggressive action uh, in its neighborhood and has sort of a positive vision of, of European integration that it can sort of work with its European partners to, to achieve. You know, the U.S. has traditionally played that role. And I think that's, you know, pretty important, even though the U.S. is obviously outside of Europe, it can have an influence that can work with Eastern and Central European countries uh, to try to bridge the gap between them and Germany on refugee issues. You know, it can it can help bridge the gap between the north and the south of Europe on fiscal and financial issues. So I think there is a, a very clear sort of path there. In the book, I sort of call this overall strategy. It's applied to the world, uh, you know, one of responsible competition that the U.S. should compete to uphold its vision of international order against the alternatives. And at least right now, although it's maybe in flux or (laughs) hard to predict at this point, with the direction it seems that U.S. foreign policy is going under the Trump administration, um, do you see someone else in Europe sort of filling the gap of, (laughs) of, uh, you know, will Europe, I guess, do what Trump wants them to do, which is take care of themselves? Or do you think that Russia will sort of fill in the gap more and, and cause even more problems? 
Well, I think that, you know, I think that when we look at U.S. policy today, there, there are sort of two defining features in the Trump administration. One is that Trump has this unique uh, temperament, sort of volatile temperament, uh, sort of relative disinterest in playing the traditional role of the United States of States in World War II, um, some fairly radical ideas. Um, and and some of his other characteristics. So that's one feature that I think is incredibly important. And the other is, you know, that you have these sort of mainstream elements within his administration, like Secretary Madison and General McMaster and others. Mm -hmm. And so far, those mainstream elements have somewhat constrained him. Mm -hmm. That may not be true, but I think if you look at what he would like to do, he would like to forge a partnership with Russia, and he would like to do much less in Europe. Now, he's been slightly frustrated in that by some of his own cabinets who've tried to uphold the, you know, the commitments and goals the U.S. has traditionally had. Um, but I think that's where his agenda is. In terms of Europe, um, the European response, I think there's widespread alarm. You know, to some degree, there's been a pushback against the Trump vision that we've seen in the Dutch elections and in the French elections. There's mm -hmm. been support for European uh, pro-EU candidates, in part because people realize what a major uh, uh, threat sort of the Trump vision is to their uh, to their interests. Um, but I think we'll see this sort of play out. And we also see, of course, Russia playing a very negative role in a lot of this, wanting to essentially usher in a period of disorder and uh, to put pressure on the EU in the hope that it will buckle. So let's uh, let's move east a little bit and uh, talk about East Asia. Um, it seems that you know this idea of of responsible competition. It many um, it seemed even the current administration are worried about China's growing influence, China's uh, you know currency practices, things like that. What what role does China want to play in the global community? Well, I think China is a, a very different uh, country, obviously, than Russia. It's not a declining power in raw economic and military terms. It is, it is in many ways, a rising power, although I think sometimes that are, that's overstated, but it certainly is a rising power economically. Um, mm. And it has a stake in the international economic order, and, and it's not fully reliant just on, on, on you know, military power. Uh, all that said, though, I think that what China wants is increasingly clear. I think it wants a spheres of influence system in East Asia, mm -hmm. where it has sort of dominance in the western part of the Western Pacific, and and it shares power with the United States in East Asia. Um, and then it also has ambitions, obviously, to its west in Central Asia with the One Belt, One Road and other initiatives. And I would like, I think, to be a fairly responsible player in the global order in terms of international financial institutions. But to me, the most important piece of all of that is the regional ambition in East Asia, because uh, pursuing a series of influence system there, I think is very destabilizing. I think that's the most significant thing that China is actually trying to do and, and the one that should give us the most concern. Um, and they're doing that, I think, and this is a major theme of the book, both in Europe and in Asia, you know, by measure, sort of short of major power war. Mm -hmm. So all of these countries, I think, want to avoid major conflict with each other, but they're willing to use uh, tools and methods short of that to accomplish their objectives. And that's very much what China is doing in the South China Sea and elsewhere. 
And right, and so are, you're talking about, um, for example, some of the rivalry between China and Japan over some of the islands, um, and things, and and even Taiwan. I would think to an extent. Uh, what sort of things are they doing? How how close to the line of war are they are they seemingly comfortable coming and what kind of what are they using to sort of push the to that um that goal well i think overall you know the just before i get on to china specifically the goal of a revisionist state is to essentially go after the non-vital interests of the status quo power mm-hmm. and to sort of chip away at the edges and then to say look, you don't want to jeopardize our entire relationship over this thing that you don't care very much about. <laughs> you know, and in China's case, that's sort of the island building in the South China Sea and some of its activities in the East China Sea. And then maybe some of the other things that it's doing to push around and intimidate its neighbors. In Russia's case, it's Crimea, Ukraine, some of the more sort of actions and then all, in the region and then also obviously the political warfare uh, that they're pursuing. Um, you know, I think that that sort of sends a message that, uh, you know, that there is a difference of interest here, that they have a greater will to pursue this, but that ultimately they don't believe the United States will go to war uh, to prevent it from, you know, to prevent them from making those incremental gains. And the thing is, they're probably right about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be very controversial to do it. The question, I think, is how do you respond in a proportionate way without triggering a major conflict that puts the onus back on them. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is the major sort of challenge for U.S. policy. And what, how does the, I mean, obviously Japan is also a major factor in this. How does the U.S. alliance with Japan factor into this um, as far as what the U.S. response will be or what the U.S. policy will be toward China um, and also China's attitude towards the U.S. Yeah, the U.S.-Japan Treaty, of course, is a central pillar of the U.S. strategy in the region. Um, it's notable that President Trump even endorsed that pretty early on, mm-hmm. uh, having criticized during the campaign and before. Um, so I think it is a very vital piece of the puzzle. Um, Japan, of course, is very alarmed by what's happening in China and they've responded um, with sort of measures of their own uh, to build up their military to some degree and to sort of have a more normal um, foreign policy. Um, but I think that obviously has raised some concerns in South Korea and elsewhere. Um, but I think ultimately the real role that Japan will play is essentially in working with its regional partners, not just with the United States, but with other countries in Asia, to sort of build up the joint capacity of Asian democracies to be able to resist um, any sort of revisionist foreign policy coming out of Beijing. Mm-hmm. And so that will ne- I don't think that will mean kinetic action or sort of use of force, but it will mean greater coordination and sort of, uh, you know, capacity building and, and a response to essentially deny uh, sort of China the objective of being able to dominate uh, uh, in large sphere of influence and to sort of compel the U.S. to sort of share power in the security front in Asia. And then obviously there's the sort of (laughs) wild card in Asia, which is North Korea. Um, Right. What is... What is China's attitude towards North Korea? Because I think that's, that's sometimes an enigma for at least the general population in the U.S. Uh, as far as what... 
Yeah. What does China feel about North Korea and what would maybe go what, what could North Korea do to go too far in China's eyes? Well, in general, I mean, taking a step back beyond sort of the last couple of years, in general, China worries about um, uh, unstable peninsula, you know, the collapse of North Korea that could lead to a unified Korea with American troops going right up to China's border mm-hmm. um, or uh, even short of that. Um, just massive instability in North Korea that would result in enormous refugee flows into China and an economic shock mm-hmm. um, with the resulting security problems as well. So I think China has always felt that that risk is a greater risk um, than North Korea with nuclear weapons. And so when the U.S. says the biggest problem in North Korea is nuclear weapons, <laughs> Chinese say, well, that's a problem. But actually, the bigger problem is, you know, if it were to collapse and we don't want to do anything that would precipitate that. So that, I think, going into sort of this whole missile uh, issue was sort of the state of play. Um, but when um, Kim Jong-un took over, he he began to worry, I think, that China would try to get rid of him or would, would sort of turn to one of their interlocutors in North Korea to replace him. And so he systematically went after them, including his uncle, and I think really consolidated power. And now I think it's not very clear that China has enormous influence over North Korea. Obviously, the US is sort of, you know, saying that China does have that and is pressing China to do more. But it's unclear that China's initial calculus has fundamentally changed. And it's also very unclear that even if it had changed, if Chinese actions would actually bring about a change in North Korean behavior, because, you know, North Korea wants the, uh, the capacity to hit the United States with a nuclear weapon because they believe that will be the one sure way to ensure their uh, their success and future existence. And so do you think, has China miscalculated on North Korea? Um, I don't think they've miscalculated. I mean, I don't think they've fundamentally miscalculated. I think they may, I, I would want to see them do more mm-hmm. uh, to solve the problem. So I'm certainly, I certainly agree with, with that critique, but I think in terms of how they define their interests, they believe that they've calibrated it relatively well. I mean, we may not agree with that, but I think, I may not agree with that, but I think that they, that's sort of how they see it. I think, did they miscalculate on Kim Jong-un? You know, they never really, as far as I know, never, you know, really supported him. They're not sort of responsible for him getting the job in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I think it's hard, you know, yes, I think they're, profoundly worried by him and they have very little time if any for him um but that's not the same thing as sort of you know that they that you know they have essentially put him there and now regret it i think they see it as a problem they're trying to manage i think the risk though with the way that president trump framed it is by saying that china is so indispensable to this problem that it has to be at the centerpiece of everything and they he sort of gives china enormous leverage to you know, to just have this problem constantly, um, you know, co- constantly uh, a problem, and then he they can sort of insist they're indispensable to solving it mm-hmm. and ask for concessions on other fronts, including Taiwan. And do, I mean, obviously, as you said before, China's goals, or I guess what they want to avoid with North Korea and what the U.S. wants to avoid with North Korea aren't necessarily the same thing. But are, is there enough common ground there that the two countries can work together? Obviously, if North Korea 
able to uh, attack the U.S. with nuclear weapons that also, with the way economies are tied up, hurts China. And I don't think China wants, you know, uh, the U.S. to necessarily be nuked. So do those, is there enough common ground there that that sort of allows a little bit of maybe uh, relationship building? Yeah, I mean, there's some common ground. I think, I think, again, you know, China agrees with the U.S. that North Korea nuclearization is a problem, and they also agree that North Korea getting an ICBM capability to hit the mainland United States would be a problem. Um, but the question is, uh, you know, the real question is a little different. It's, it's firstly, how big of a problem do they think it is? And I think there's reason to think they think it's a big problem, but less of a big problem than other problems, mm-hmm. such as, you know, collapsing North Korea. But even more importantly, I think, um, is the question about whether or not they have the capacity to change North Korean behavior. You know, and that, I think, is very, very unclear um, at best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not the North Korean economy is actually in better shape than it was, you know, in the, in the midst of the famine. It's actually doing OK. Um, so they don't they're not on the on the cusp of collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they're very determined to get this capability. And so you 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 know, you have to ask yourself, you know, what could China do short of just in, in a, a massive, massive economic warfare effort? Uh, to to try to collapse the North Korean economy and 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 what would how would the North Koreans even respond to that because we're sort of counting on them, you know, essentially just backing down and and embracing a negotiated outcome. Is that the most likely outcome? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, it's I think this will be a problem that will be around uh, for a considerable period of time. It's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. And what does um, you know, you've you've put forth this idea of sort of responsible competition. What does responsible competition look like between, say, the 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 biggest competing powers, uh, the U.S., Russia, and China? Yeah. So responsible competition is is the strategy that I I um, argue for, and it's really a choice I think between two approaches. One approach, the, the first approach that I don't agree with is to is to sort of embrace this erosion of the liberal international order and allow the spirit of influence order to emerge and to essentially accommodate or at least tolerate sort of Russian assertiveness and Chinese assertiveness. And I think that that will be quite destabilizing because the spirit of influence order is quite, quite as prone and it's very difficult to get from here to there without major problems. And ultimately, I think it's a world that's less uh, open, less free, less um, less likely to be economically prosperous or to have major power cooperation and common challenges. So I sort of, uh, you know, lay out the case against that. But I argue for this strategy of responsible competition, which recognizes that the world politics of the next 10 to 20 years will be inherently competitive, that there are clashes of interest. And that you have to essentially stand up for your vision of what you would like to see the international order look like, mm-hmm. and that you need to be quite clear about that, and you need to sort of propose double down in a way on the liberal part of the liberal international order, but you should do so in a way that's responsible, that focuses on the parts of Chinese and Russian behavior that's actually genuinely problematic, 
mm-hmm. um, while being more constructive with them on other fronts mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. trying to preserve cooperation on mutual interests, even though it's, even though you compete on, on areas of difference. And so um, b- before we end here, maybe maybe in the spirit of, of optimism or positivity, especially when, sure. <laughs> when there's so mm-hmm. much to be negative about, um, what are some things that we, as you know, the general population of the U.S. and the U.S. government, what are some things we can look at in Russia and China and sort of say, hey, we like that about them, that this is where we can find common ground? Well, I, I think firstly, uh, in terms of the optimism, I, I think that, uh, you know, I try to say in the book that I think that, you know, the U.S. is very well positioned, actually, for this competition and that. Uh, the United States has some major advantages, and and um, I don't think the U.S. is in decline actually, mm-hmm. and I think the U.S. you know can um, can deal with these challenges just as effectively as it's dealt with challenges in the past. Um, I think that one of those advantages that the U.S. has is that most people, you know, see this international order as more in their interest than any of the alternatives. You know that is that they, ultimately it serves. Um, most countries, almost all countries in the world, if they, they had to choose an order that didn't involve them running it, you know, most of them would choose some version of what we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is a major asset. And that also goes for certain, there are people in Russia and China, I think you understand that. I mean, if you look at Russian uh, actions today, in some ways it's avoiding the necessity of structural reform and wanting to avoid political modernization and openness. You know, because it would threaten the regime, but the Russian people, I think, would like would like to see um, that. Uh, in terms of what's going on, that you know, that those countries are doing that are that is positive. I mean, I think that's easier to answer in China's case, and mm-hmm. and there, I think we see this great economic dynamism, and uh, you know, and and that should be, you know, certainly that ambition, I think, should be compatible or must be compatible with U.S. interests. Um, and we also see, you know, a pretty significant contribution that China is making to its regional order. But the concerns, I think, are obviously that that, um, that can be uh, directed in, in, in destabilizing ways. And so it's important to be vigilant about that. In Russia, I think Russia is a, a more difficult, it's more difficult <laughs> to answer. Obviously, I think Russia has made a massive contribution uh, to the world and to international order, but, but it's in terms of Putin's Russia, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's harder to identify real uh, sort of core strengths that are that are attractive in part because they've avoided, uh, you know, structural reform and they, you know, and they, uh, they, they have been sort of a disruptor in, in, in world politics, but they have great potential and, and enormous capacity for, for positive change if they choose to, you know, direct their policy in that way. All right. Well, the book is All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Tom, thank you very much for coming on today. Great. Thank you. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. And be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.